0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, good evening. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And uh, before we get going on this, I really appreciated Stephen's prayer Uh, Like, what a good reminder that that is to us, like, during times of election, the whole election season, uh, that God ain't running for God, right? He just is. And I stole that phrase from Votie Bacham, You guys should check him out. God ain't running for God. He just is God. And I appreciate that. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, But yeah, tonight, we're starting a new series looking at Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And before we get going, if you don't learn anything else this evening, evening, you should know this. Uh, It's Revelation, not Revelations. Right? It's not plural. Right? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ to St. John. All right? Revelation, singular. It's just a personal thing that annoys me. I love it whenever I get on Facebook and I'll see someone say, Yeah, I'm an atheist. I, I used to be a Christian. And the book of Revelations says, and I'm like, well, you weren't a very good one. Um, but anyhow, uh, yeah, singular. Uh, but this series is going to be seven weeks long, looking at the seven letters to the seven churches. Right, and you might be asking yourself, you know, why are we doing this series this way? Uh, why only these two chapters? You know, Because usually we'll pick a book and we'll walk in that book for a long time, months or a year. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, uh, I, I don't think I'm ready to take you verse by book, verse through this book. Uh, I'm not there yet. I'm a student of scripture, just like the rest of you guys. And there's a lot for me to learn before I can really walk through this book uh, verse by verse. Uh, but Lord willing, someday we'll do that and we'll spend a long, long time in Revelation. Uh, But these two chapters, chapters two and three of this book, are are really great and they are intensely practical for all churches in all times. As a matter of fact, this whole book is relevant for all churches in all times. It was written to be that way. It's meant to be interpreted that way, that you're not always looking for future, though parts of it are future, but that this thing has relevance for the church in all ages. Uh, But in these seven letters, Jesus addresses some issues going on in the church of Asia in the first century. Uh, And the things that he addresses, again, are relevant for us today. Uh, The whole Bible, in fact, is relevant for us today, contrary to what Andy Stanley and people like him might say. Don't listen to that nonsense. You don't need to unhitch any parts of the Bible ever, right? The whole book is good. Um, It's it's, it's a bestseller, I've heard. Um, But anyway, the reason for this series, really, is that Stephen and I want this church to be healthy, We want this church to be healthy. Uh, We want this congregation to be godly to walk in Christ's commands, to have genuine love for Christ, to love what he loves and hate what he hates. right? To give you a little insight into Pastor Stephen, I remember whenever he and I first became the elders and I said, man, are we going to pull the trigger and just be a Reformed Baptist church and kind of drop off this non-denominational stuff? He said, well, man, it's what the Bible teaches, so that's what we're going to do. And I said, well, you know that our church is probably never going to break over a hundred, right? Because no one likes this stuff. And Stephen said... I don't care if we're the biggest church. I want us to be the godliest church. I want us to be the healthiest church. I want us to be the holiest church that we can possibly be. Right, so that gives you a little bit of an insight into your other pastor. And that's a good word for me. Right? That, that's, that's our goal. We want this place to be healthy and honoring to the Lord Jesus. We want this church to be one that pleases our Lord Jesus Christ. And in these seven letters, we can, among other things... We can measure ourselves and see if we're in line with what Jesus approves among his people. And if nothing else, looking at these letters can put us on guard for what to avoid as a church, and what to expect as a church, and what to strive for as the people of God. Uh, so tonight we're going to be looking at the first letter in chapters 2 and 3. Again, verses 1 through 7. The first letter. And it's the letter to the church of Ephesus. right? The church of Ephesus is a church that the Apostle Paul founded. Uh, at one point, it had Timothy as its pastor. Right, you guys are familiar with Paul's letter to Timothy? That's the Timothy. He was pastor of the church in Ephesus. Uh, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to them. Uh, this is a church, if, if we could say anything else, this is a church that had a rich history of good teachers and sound doctrine and certainly had a good beginning. Uh, and In this letter, we're going to see Jesus give three commendations, Right, attaboys, good jobs, to the church in Ephesus. And he's going to give them commendations for, one, their sound doctrine, right? They rejected false teaching and clung tightly to the teachings of the apostles. Two, he commends them for their moral purity, right? Their rejection of immoral living. And three, he commends them for their endurance in persecution. Beautiful things, right? Good church. But Jesus says that he has one problem with the church in Ephesus. And their problem was that they had abandoned the love they had at first. They abandoned, the King James says, their first love. And we'll get into that later. But Jesus said that for all that there was to be glad about in their church, for all the purity that they had, they had grown cold in their love. And Jesus is so serious that they repent and renew their love that he threatens to come and remove them as a church if they don't repent. This is deadly serious. Now, of all of the letters, of all the seven letters, I think this letter is most relevant to our church. Right, to, to Revolution Church as a congregation. Right? Now, hear me out. I'm not accusing any, us, any, any of us of being cold or not loving Christ, not accusing us of that necessarily, but I have seen this church gravitate that way in the past. We become so obsessed with doctrine that we almost kind of start devouring one another uh, or, or just lacking love in general and forgetting why do we study this stuff in the first place? Why do we love the Bible in the first place? Right? We've come a long way, but I think this is something that we're prone to. Actually, I think that if Jesus were writing seven letters to seven church tribes, right, like church traditions, that this would be the letter to the Reformed churches. I'm just throwing that out there, right? You ever heard uh, people call us the Frozen Chosen? You ever heard that? Right? Like there's these cold, calculated, doctrinal people who don't love very well, right? Frozen Chosen, one of my favorite uh, uh, nicknames for us, uh, is a nickname for a reason, right? Reformed churches can become cold, rigid and doctrinal people that lack love. And I think we can become that more easily than other tribes because we spend so much time in the study and because we care so much about purity and doctrine. Um, And I love my tribe, don't get me wrong, right? But my prayer is that we would take seriously here this call for us to love Christ with zeal and passion, right? And, And that we wouldn't fall into a cold, dead, rigid orthodoxy like so many people are prone to do but that instead our sound doctrine would lead us to a robust love of not only the truth, but the Christ who gave the truth. So that being said, let's go ahead and read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Almighty God. And you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes now that we may see the wonders of your word and its beauty and its truth. And give us grace that we may clearly understand and willingly choose the way of your wisdom. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So verse 1 says... To the angel of the church in Ephesus right. And we're going to stop there. To the angel of the church. I just don't want you guys to think, be super curious about that because that can get you hung up as you're trying to study this. Jesus says John has to write to the angel of the church. The angel. Now scholars debate on what Jesus means here. Okay, angel usually refers to a heavenly spirit being, right? Whenever you hear the word angel, the, the thing that you think of, or maybe you're wrong in what you think of when you think of an angel because you've watched too much Supernatural. Um, but angel, a, a heavenly spirit being, Right? But the Greek here, uh, the word for angel can also mean messenger. It has a semantic range. It just depends on the context that you're using that word, whether it means angel or messenger. Uh, And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. But I think that in this context, it makes the most sense that Jesus is telling John to write a letter to the messenger of the church in Ephesus. I just think that makes the most sense. It's the the clearest, plainest reading of the text, in in my opinion. Um, And the messenger of each church would be its pastor, or it's pastors, right? It's, it's ministers, it's elders. Um, the ones who speak to the church on behalf of Jesus, right? The ones with the message, right? So that makes the most sense to me. Again, there's some debate on this, and you're, you're free to fight me in the parking lot about it. We'll rumble, it's cool. Uh, but either way, it doesn't really affect our understanding of the main points of this letter that I want us to see this evening. I just wanted to go ahead and address that real quick. So, verse 1. To the angel or messenger of the church in Ephesus write... The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. All right, this is a description of Jesus. Jesus is calling himself the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is a reference Um, If if you've read chapter 1 of Revelation, this is a reference back to John's vision of Jesus in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. He hears a voice, he turns around to see what the voice is, and he sees Jesus. And it's this huge, symbolic, beautiful vision that he has. But what are the stars and lampstands, right? What are they? Well, I'm glad you asked, right? Because in chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus actually tells us, right? It's like he throws us a freebie. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, this is Jesus, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So again, the seven stars are the angels, the messengers, the pastors of the churches. And that's a sermon in and of itself, uh, but we're not going to hang there. Moving past that, I, what I want you guys to see this evening is that Jesus says he walks among the golden lampstands. He walks among his churches. This is beautiful. This is a picture of intimacy. Jesus says he personally walks among his people. He walks among every individual congregation. Right? Even now, Christ as per his divine nature, is, is present here with us spiritually, right? with us even now. This should be a great encouragement to all of Christ's people. He walks among us at all times. Now again, this is a picture of intimacy. He, he, he takes joy. Christ takes joy to walk among his churches like someone enjoys walking with a friend. Right? Matthew Henry says he, he strolls through his churches like a man strolls through his garden, right? taking pleasure in what he's made. Right? And I don't have a garden, but that's just a beautiful analogy. But he loves his churches. He loves his golden lampstands. And you, Christian, as a member of his church, he loves you. Right? He takes joy in observing the people he bought for himself. He takes joy in you. So it's a comfort for us to know that Christ is always present with us everywhere we go. He walks among his churches. But I want, I want to point something out. I want to draw your attention to something that I think is going to be important for us later, at least a little bit. He calls us his golden lampstands. His golden lampstands. Lampstands, not tin, not clay, golden lampstands. Now, gold is a precious metal, right? This is beautiful for me to think on. Gold is a precious metal. It's worth a lot. All throughout the scriptures, it's a precious thing. I don't think that symbol should be lost on us here. He calls his churches his golden lampstand. He's declaring that he views his church as precious to him. Christ loves his church. Like gold, gold that he made, right? He loves his church. We are his bride. So Christian, again, I'm trying to stoke your affections towards Christ because this is going to be important later. I want you to know his great love for you. You're precious to him, Christian. He loves you. He walks with you. He takes the light in you. You are his. He laid down his life for you, a sinner, so that you could know him. He left heaven for you and enjo- endured the cross set before him because of the joy That awaited. And that was the joy of saving a people for himself, that he might make them beautiful and they would become precious to him. So know that you, as a member of his church, are part of this precious golden lampstand that he walks among. Christ loves you. That's how he views you. Precious to him. But Jesus continues in verse 2. He says, I know your works. Jesus says he knows the works of the Ephesians. He knows what they've done and why they've done it. Right? All of their actions, every thought, every word, every deed. And he knows their heart motives that were behind every thought, word, and deed. He knows all of it. Right? Christ is the all-present, all-knowing king. Nothing escapes his eyes. He sees all. He knows all that we do. There is no escaping him. He knows our works. Both the good and the bad. The good intentions, the bad intentions. What's done for his glory? What's done for your glory? What might look good, but is in fact idolatrous? And what might be a failure, but was intended to glorify him? He knows it all. He knows our works. And as he knows the works of the Ephesians, he knows both they're good and they're bad. Right? And at first, he, he, I want to focus on the three positive things that he says about them in verses 2, 3, and 6. So we're going to take this a little bit out of order. But I want us to see his commendations, right? Because we can learn here, when Jesus says, attaboy, right, that's a good thing, that that pleases me, right, we should say, okay, that's what we want to strive for. Okay, so let's look at how Jesus commends them first. Verse 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So I could sum up this commendation from Christ. Jesus is patting them on the back, the church in Ephesus. He's saying, good job, because of their dedication to and defense of pure doctrine. Right? So apparently what we can gather from verse 2 is that there were some false teachers who came into Ephesus at some point in time, prior to this letter being written, and they claimed to be an apostle. Right, that's a big claim. To claim to be an apostle was to claim to receive direct and divine revelation from God himself. Right? To claim to teach new doctrines from God with authority. They are from God. I speak on behalf of God. To claim to be able to work miracles and the like. Right? Think of the apostles. Right? These people had come into the church of Ephesus and they were claiming to be on the same level as Paul with their authority and with their doctrine. But the Ephesians weren't falling for it. Right, the Ephesians weren't having it. Jesus says, you have tested them and found them to be false. He says, you cannot bear with evil men. Right? These false teachers, you won't put up with them for a second. Right? You tested them and found them to be liars. And to test these false teachers would mean that they had to measure what the false teachers were teaching and how they were living to measure those things against the teachings of the Old Testament and the true apostles. Right? So they had to test things. They had to test them according to what they had seen in the scriptures. So to put it in a modern way, the church in Ephesus knew their Bibles. And I'm not saying that they all had Bibles. right? And I'm not saying that they were all literate either. But I'm saying that metaphorically speaking, they knew doctrine. They had heard teachings from the apostles. They were versed in the Old Testament. Right? They committed these things to memory. They knew the truth. They studied the truth. And they held fast to the doctrines taught to them by Paul and Timothy. They held held tightly to those things, right? Like in modern times, they weren't letting people like Bill Johnson and Todd White into their church, right? And just for the record, if you listen to those dudes on Facebook, please stop. That's trash, and it's bad for your soul, right? But they weren't having that kind of nonsense in their church. If someone claimed to be a teacher and yet didn't teach in accordance with the Scriptures, the Ephesians kicked them out of the church. Jesus says you can't bear these evil men. Right? It means you won't tolerate them. You don't put up with that nonsense. That is to say, the Ephesians loved doctrine. They loved doctrine. They didn't mess around with error when it came to the Word of God. They didn't play. right? And let me make a note here. This is a good thing. This is a really, really good thing that they love doctrine. Right? The people of God love the doctrines of Scripture. We defend them. We don't willingly, or with a wink, allow error into our churches. Even if it's small, we don't just let things slide. We stand for truth. We reject falsehood. That's what we do. This is a good thing. Jesus is patting the Ephesians on the back for this. He's saying, it pleases me that you care about the teaching that goes on in your church. And this reminds us, something I try to tell you guys on a regular basis, and I hope to say until I die. Doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Matters, right? Don't fall for that whole modern evangelical thing that says doctrine isn't that important. You just have to love Jesus, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Doctrine doesn't matter. You just have to love Jesus. That's nonsense, right? Apart from sound doctrine, you don't know who Jesus is and you don't know how to love him. In fact, to say you just need to love Jesus is a doctrine. I'm right? just throwing that out there for you, right? But that's just nonsense. Jesus commends this church for caring about the teaching that goes on among them and rejecting error and booting out false teachers. He says, Good job. Right, and this is something that I. This is why I think of of our church when I read this first letter. This is something that our church excels in. I think. All right? you guys don't play whenever it comes to doctrine, right? And I'm grateful to God for that. Right, Stephen and I have worked hard trying to trying to instill that in here to get a a, a studious people. Um, you know, I know that whenever I come into the pulpit, I better come ready to faithfully preach whatever the word says, even if it makes me uncomfortable, even if it's going to make you uncomfortable. And I know that I better come ready to preach what the word says because if I don't. Homeboy's gonna come and lay it down for me and call me to repent, right? Someone in this church is gonna come and say something, and I'm grateful to God for that. But it's clear that the Ephesians loved the word of God. They loved sound doctrine, and they rejected false teaching, but let's go on. There's two other things Jesus commends them for. Verse three, Christ says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Right. so the Ephesians, we, we, we know historically... Uh, they had been enduring persecution from their pagan, unbelieving city, right? We, we, can, we can look in history books and we see that uh, Ephesus, their, their city, was a cultural hub for idolatry, right? And it was actually a lucrative business for them. They made a lot of money off false worship, right? The Temple of Artemis, you guys familiar with that? The Temple of Diana, right, depending on whether or not you're Greek or Roman. Uh, but, but the Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and it was in Ephesus, There's a lot of money to be found there. It actually, from what I've heard, uh, functioned as a bank, that temple did. Uh, Lots of stuff, lots of money coming in and out of that city centered around the temple to the false goddess Artemis in Ephesus. And not only that, but there was a lucrative business uh, in that city of producing idols, right? You might wear them around your neck, you might put them in your home, right? Think like little Buddha statues that you see like your hippie friends put in their stuff, it's weird. Uh, Maybe you didn't have those friends, but I do. but there, there, was, there was a lucrative business producing idols and magic books in Ephesus. Um, so the pagans really didn't like it whenever the Christians came in and told people to repent, burn their pagan books, destroy their pagan idols, and worship Jesus. Right? That was bad for business, and the, the Ephesians did not uh, take to that very kindly. Right? That would have brought persecution on the church there. We actually read in the book of Acts that a riot broke out once in Ephesus because Paul was there preaching the gospel. They hated it. Right, So this is a tough place to be a Christian. The pressure and persecution from their unbelieving surroundings would have been incredibly hard. What I'm getting at is they would have been tempted to compromise on the truth. They would have been tempted to compromise on the truth of the gospel and the truth of the scriptures in order to avoid the hatred and persecution of their unbelieving neighbors around them. They'd have been tempted to compromise. But Jesus says, you are enduring and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary, right? So they were bearing up well. The church refused to compromise. They refused to bow the knee to their culture. They refused to bow the knee to their pagan government around them, right? They didn't give up. They hadn't grown weary of the fight. They were fighting to stay faithful to the truth, and they were doing it for Jesus' namesake. He says, you do all this. You're enduring patiently for my name. They were doing it to advance Christ's truth, Christ's kingdom, Christ's gospel and Christ's church. So again, they refused to compromise. They stayed faithful, and Christ commends them for their faithfulness. But as we skip down to verse 6, we see the third and final commendation Jesus gives this church. Yet this you have you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitans, which is the most fun word to say in this passage, say it to yourself sometime, Uh, it means victory people, right? This was a group of heretics, okay? And we know that from uh, the early church fathers. They said it was a group of heretics that rose up in the church claiming to be Christians, and they didn't last for very long. So we don't have a whole lot of information uh, on the Nicolaitans. Uh, But from what we can gather, they were probably antinomians, all right? So there's your $5 word of the day. Uh, To be antinomian means to be against the law of God, right? Right? People who think that since we're saved by grace alone and not of our works, that you can just live like the devil and ignore what God has commanded, right? And we've we've studied 1 John. If anyone claims uh, to love Christ and doesn't follow him and his commandments, they're a liar and they're not a Christian, right? But again, these are antinomian people who think you can live however you want. Now, again, we don't know much from history about them, but in these letters, Jesus references them a couple of times uh, in a couple of different parts that we're going to be looking at over this series but we're told from what we can gather from what jesus says that the nicolaitans encouraged christians to commit acts of sexual immorality and idolatry he's compared to balaam balaam was a a prophet in the old testament who uh planned and actually uh, executed a plan to get the israelites to fall into idolatry and sexual immorality with unbelieving women Uh, so again they're compared to balaam that's where we get that from so they're, they're tempting these Christians to engage in sexual immorality, to worship false gods, to, to dabble a bit in the temple worship in their area. And Jesus applauds the Ephesians for absolutely detesting what the Nicolaitans taught. He says, you hate their works. You hate what they teach. You hate how they live. And Jesus says, I hate it too. <laughs> I hate their teachings. I hate how they live. All right, so in other words, the Ephesians rejected immoral living. They hated immorality and they loved moral purity. And this would lead us to conclude that the Ephesians probably handled church discipline pretty well, right? Jesus says, you, you cannot bear with these evil men is what he says in verse 2, right? So again, they rejected false teachers and immoral living. And as far as we can tell from this description, the church of Ephesus would have been a pretty pure church, Right? They would have practiced church discipline. They would have been striving for obedience to Christ, calling people to repent of their false teaching and loose living, and then exercising church discipline on the unrepentant because they will not bear with that kind of nonsense. Pure, pretty pure place to be. But to sum up all of Jesus' commendations, this is what we see. The church in Ephesus loved sound doctrine, refused to compromise under persecution, and hated immorality. Right? That's what we see from them. This is a good church, (laughs) right? This is a good church. This is a church you'd want to join, right? Like you'd scour Sayota County to find a church. Where can I find a church like the Ephesian church, right? I want to join those people. Right, Because as far as you can tell by what they do on the outside, this is the place to be. This is a good church. This is a healthy church. Right? They preach expositionally. They have reverent worship, a high liturgy. They love doctrine. They're staying faithful. They do church discipline. They're probably Reformed Baptists, if we're going to be completely honest. Um, but by all accounts... That was a joke, guys. You can chuckle. I know that was, an, uh, that was anachronistic. Right? It was not how it was. Um, but by all accounts... On external works, this church would appear to have no real problems. This would be a place you wanted to be. But Jesus says earlier in verse 2, I know your works. I know your works. I know your heart. I know why you do what you do. I know everything. Not just the outside, but the hearts of men. So now we move into Jesus' rebuke of the Ephesian church. Verse 4. But I have this against you. Just real quick, how heartbreaking is this? Like chilling for the Lord Jesus to look at a congregation and say, I have something against you. I have this against you. You're messing this area up. You're sinning against me in this area. I have this against you. That should give us pause. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first you abandon the love you had at first when you consider all the good that Jesus praises them for this rebuke seems to come out of nowhere doesn't it like what else is there man like it sounds like they're nailing it what what they don't they lack love what are you talking about Jesus says that for all of their love of doctrine pure morality faithfulness to the truth they lack love but love for who Jesus calls it, in the ESV, it says, the love you had at first. I prefer the King James on this, actually. says, you have left your first love. You've left your first love. Their first love. The love they had at the first. At the beginning of their life of faith. That kind of first. The love they had at the beginning of their life of faith. They've lost it. They've abandoned it. They've left it. This is love for Jesus himself. Jesus is the first love of every believer, isn't he? He's the first love of every believer. He's the one that we loved at the first in our lives of the people of God. God gives us the new birth and we look to Christ and see Christ crucified and raised on our behalf and say, Him. Him. I want Him. I must have Him. I love Him. Look what He's done. He is our first love. And Jesus is saying that the Ephesians, for all of their good works have grown cold in their love for Jesus Christ himself. They loved the doctrine. They loved the morality. They refused to compromise, but they didn't love Jesus like they used to. i want to make a note here. They didn't abandon Christ entirely. Okay, that's not the point here. They weren't a bunch of apostates, right? Jesus calls them one of his churches, (laughs) right? They weren't a bunch of apostates. Um, and I say that because no, no true believer can ever have zero love for Christ. Right? There's always some love there for Jesus. Our confession says the seed of faith, no matter how small, is always still in a believer. Right? You know, we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. There's always some measure of love in our hearts for Jesus. Even Jesus himself said in verse 3 that they endured all this persecution for the sake of his name. Right? So it's not that they have no love for Christ. They did love him in some degree, but it was cold. Metaphorically speaking, they had decreased in heat. They had decreased in zeal. They had lost the high degree of love that they had at first. Now listen to me. I want to spend some time here. There's an important lesson for us to see here. There's an important warning for us to see here. It is possible to love the truth and lack love for the one who gave you the truth. It's possible. It's possible to love God's law and lack love for the God whom the law reflects. It's possible to refuse to compromise to the world and yet compromise the affections of your heart. And please hear me on this. It is possible to love the message of the gospel and lack love for the one who accomplished it. It's possible. This may seem crazy and impossible, but the church in Ephesus is proof that it happens because this is Christ's rebuke to them. And, that, and I'm sure you all can think of churches that you've visited or churches that you know of that this has happened to. Everything's cool on the outside, but they've abandoned their first love. They've grown cold towards Christ. And all the while, everything that the church taught and did was absolutely sound, but they weren't doing it out of love for Jesus. One of the dangers that we face being a people that study hard and defend the doctrine and purity of the church, one of the dangers that we face is that we would succumb to a cold, rigid formalism. Formalism, I would, I would, I would describe that to you. What I mean by that is a cold adherence to doctrine for the sake of doctrine. The Puritans talked about this a lot. Really studious people. We have to avoid formalism. A rigid holding to the truth for the sake of truth and being right and not out of love for Christ. You have to be aware of this. Everything can look good and biblical on the outside. The statement of faith is sound. The liturgy can be reverent. The people can hate error and defend the Bible, but at the same time, we can do those things just for the sake of doing them. Dare I say it, just because we like to be right. Right? Or we can do them just because this is how it's supposed to be. And we can fall into a cold, dead orthodoxy. We can become so obsessed with purity and doctrine and living that we forget why we even care about those things in the first place. Let me give you an illustration on this, and I didn't make this one up because I'm not this this, uh, creative. all right? Let's say that Autumn and I, Autumn's my wife, let's say that Autumn and I go out and park in a field at night so we can look at the stars while we're in the car. All right, you know this is an illustration because I wouldn't do that. Okay, <laughs> just go so we can so we can look at the stars uh, through the windshield of the car, right? But but I see the windshield is dirty whenever I get there, so I get out and I clean the windshield off, and then I get inside and I clean off the inside of the windshield too. Right? So now the windshield's like super clean, right? It's so clean that you can't even really tell that there's a windshield there, right? Birds will fly into it. Or you ever seen that happen to city buildings where they got everything so clean, right? It's like that kind of clean. How ridiculous would it be then? if i spent the whole time we were there talking about how clean the windshield is how ridiculous you laugh it's ridiculous right look at this this window is clean you can't even tell that it's there this windshield looks so good doesn't it autumn the whole point of having a clean windshield is so we can look out and see the stars and enjoy them wasn't it we can do the same thing with purity and doctrine in our churches We can spend so much time reforming and making everything line up with scripture and then afterwards just sit around and say, isn't it so clean here? (laughs) Haven't we done such a good job here? This is great. Look how pure it is in the congregation. Look how pure it is in the pulpit. And we've forgotten that the whole reason that we cared about the doctrine and everything else in the first place was so that we could see God more clearly was so that we might love him in in accord with how he tells us to love him. So that the church would more clearly reflect the character and nature of God. This sounds crazy, but it happens more often than you'd think. And as I said three times already, it can happen most easily in our tribe. The reformed tribe that cares so deeply about doctrine. Believe it or not, you can make an idol out of the truth. You know how sinful you are and how sinful I am? We can take the truth of God and make it an idol. We can make idols out of doctrine. You can even make an idol out of your Bible. May God help us against that. May we get in the study and do our devotions and spend much time in prayer and read good books and defend the truth because we want to know Christ. Because we want to know Christ more deeply. Because we want the flame of love in our hearts to burn brightly and cleanly for him. That's why we must study. Because we want to know our God better. Because we want others to see and know our God and love him too. Listen, if we're doing these things that we do for, no other, or for, for any other reason than love for Christ, it is idolatry. If you study the word just so that you might fill your head, you are an idolater. If you read systematic theologies and debate with Arminians until your throat doesn't work anymore, just for the sake of being right and knowing more stuff, you are an idolater. If it's not done out of love for Christ in any area of our life, it is idolatry. Because you are not loving the Lord your God. I want to make a note here because I don't want to be misunderstood. Doctrine is non-negotiable. I hope that I have a track record enough that I will tell you that, and that you know that about me already. Doctrine is non-negotiable. Don't misunderstand me. We have to know and defend the truth. Again, verse 2, Jesus commends this. He rejoices in it. But that's not all that there is. That's not all that there is. Our doctrine is meant to result in our greater love for Christ. If it doesn't, then it is a worthless idol. So where are you at on this, right? Where are you at? Please be honest with yourself because it doesn't, no, no church just wakes up one morning as a whole congregation and says, you know, I would like to not love Christ as much as I once did. It doesn't happen, it starts with individuals and then it creeps into the whole culture of the church. Check your heart, be honest with yourself. Where are you at on this? This is serious business. Jesus is telling us that it's not enough to be right in our theology. It's not enough even to be right in the way that we live. We must love him. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We must love him. Have you grown cold toward him? Have you substituted love for Christ with mere head knowledge? Have you abandoned your first love? But never forget this. Jesus views us, verse one, his precious golden lampstands. Please don't forget this. This is how he views us, precious to him. He is, it's one of my favorite phrases I've learned recently. He is the God of patience. He's the God of patience towards his people. He loves you and he is gracious to you. And in his grace, if you've grown cold, he tells us the remedy. He tells us the remedy. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. He tells us to remember, which is one of the most common commands in the scriptures. Remember, don't forget, remember. He says, remember from where you've fallen. Remember the love that you once had for him. Compare your love now with the love that you had when you first came to faith in Jesus. Consider the passion with which you once loved our Lord. Right? Do, do you remember Do you remember how much you loved Christ when you were first born again? And some of you, maybe you don't know exactly when you were converted, so I ask this. Do you remember how much you loved Christ when you first came to understand and really grasp the gospel of grace? Do you remember how much you loved him? When you really understood and laid hold of Christ by faith. When you first, for the first time, could really say, I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm saved. Jesus has saved me. I am free. I will live. There is no condemnation for me. Christ has died for me. And He lived for me. He's mine. I'm saved through Him. Do you remember that? He was precious to you, was He not? He was precious to you. You wanted to do whatever he says. You wanted to study his word. You wanted to walk in his commandments. You wanted to know the scriptures front and back. You didn't want to be wrong in anything. You wanted to do whatever he says because you were grateful to him and you loved him. You were like a bride on her wedding day. I love him. I want to be with him. I want to be wherever He is. I'm so glad I'm His. I'm so glad He's mine. I'll never forsake Him. He is my all. He is everything to me. I must have Him. Or have you forgotten? Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what it was like to be apart from Christ and without God and without hope in the world? Has Christ become commonplace to you? And you take for granted just how much he's loved you and just what he did for you. Have you forgotten what you owe him? You owe him a debt of love. Have you forgotten that he actually loves you? Have you forgotten that he laid down his life for you while you were yet a sinner? That he left heaven and poured himself out and took on the form of a human being in order to be beaten, nailed to a piece of wood, and suffer the wrath of God on your behalf so you might be forgiven and live forever with him in paradise. Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten that the gospel isn't just a set, God help us. It's not just a set of concepts and doctrine, but it is the expression of Christ's love for you. Have you forgotten that? He displayed his love for us in his life, death, and resurrection. It's not just a concept. It's not just a doctrine. He's loved you dearly. Have you forgotten what he's done for you? He's been so kind to you. Loved you with such an unfailing love. How could we have forgotten? Jesus says, remember the love you once had for me. And then repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus is calling those who have grown cold and lack love for Him to turn from their coldness and deadness and remember what He's done. To remember the gospel. Please hear me. I used to think it was just ludicrous whenever I was a new Christian and people said, the gospel's the answer to everything. I was like, yeah, that's a bumper sticker. Right? It's true though. Remember the gospel and dwell on it. And let it warm the flame in your heart towards Christ. And then go back and love Him as you once did. Hear me out. It's, it is our remembering the love that we had for Christ and why we loved Him so dearly that will lead us back to the place that Christ would have us. So really, we ought to meditate on and remember the good news that He has saved us. That's what we ought to do. Think on it daily. Please hear me on this. This was profound for me to think this week. And it's such a simple statement. And duh, doctrine didn't save you. Jesus saved you. Your understanding of all these truths in the scripture did not save you. Christ saved you. We must think about the gospel in such a way that it affects us. So that it's not just a concept, it's not just a doctrine, but it is the very love of God displayed toward us, the sinners who didn't deserve it. So remember Christ's love for you, and you'll love him as you did at the first. read verse 5 again in its entirety. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus tells the Ephesians that it's so important that his people love him that if they don't repent, he will come and remove them as a church. This is serious. Jesus isn't messing around with this. This is a serious offense against him that we wouldn't love him. Now, I'm not sure if Jesus means that he will allow persecution to destroy the church or if he means that he will stop using the church. And in that sense, it will cease to be a church. Right, like You can keep your form and your doctrine, you can keep your institution, but I'm not going to use you anymore. You're not going to have any power among you. I don't know which one, but regardless, Christ says that they will cease to be a church if they don't repent from their lack of love and remember their former love and begin to love Him with true love again. This tells us something that's so important, and it's this. Love for Christ is the distinguishing mark of a true church. Without it, if nothing else, we can get from the end of verse 5. Without genuine love for Christ, the church will die. Lack of love for Jesus is the beginning of death for any congregation, no matter how pristine their beliefs are. The institution and the form may still stand, but it will be cold and useless. An institution that Christ has no part with. So in light of that, I think there's something for us to remember here, and I hope you don't misunderstand me. A church would be better off to have some error in their theology but have true love for Christ than to have a perfect, pristine theology and lack love for Jesus. I'm not saying it's acceptable to have poor theology, but you'd be better off to have some errors in your doctrine but true love for Christ than have perfect doctrine and lack love for Christ. Christ will call that church who is in error to repent and fix their doctrine, but he will still use them. He'll still use them. They'll still be a church. The church in Ephesus, unless I, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're the only church that Christ threatens to remove them as a church because they lack love. That's something for us to ponder on. But then Jesus ends this letter with an encouragement to those who repent and come back to him. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He's basically saying, listen to what I've said. This is serious. If I've given you ears to hear, if you're one of my people that I have caused to be born again, then listen and do as I've said. And he tells us to heed his words for a good reason. The reward is so, so great. Heed what I've said. He says that to those who conquer, to those who repent, those who remain faithful to him and love him, he will allow them to eat of the tree of life in the restored garden of Eden. So he's saying there. To those who love him, he will grant eternal life to them. In the context of this letter, I would argue that to conquer is to continue to love him as we did at first. I think that's the context here. To conquer is to continue to love him. To continue to repent when we realize that we've become cold. To continue to daily soak the flames of our hearts with love towards Christ. Jesus says those who love him will conquer and receive eternal life. Let me make a note here. Not those who have the most pure doctrine, though that is important. Not those who never sin. Though holiness and living in purity is incredibly important, and I'm not trying to minimize that, but it is those who love Him who will conquer. Those who love Him will conquer. Those who love Him will receive eternal life. And that's because to truly have faith in Christ, to truly be a Christian, is to love Jesus with sincerity. That's what it is to be a Christian. True love for Christ is the result of true saving faith. So it's no wonder that Jesus says, love me and conquer. Love me and receive eternal life. So may we love him. May we love him. May we daily meditate upon what Christ has done for us. May we remember the great love that he has shown to us in his death and resurrection on our behalf. May we remember his great patience and grace and kindness toward us. And may God grant us repentance if we've grown cold towards him. So search your heart. Lay yourself open before God. If you've grown cold towards Christ, repent. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember the love of Christ towards you. And then repent and do the works you did at first. Conquer by his grace and receive the reward he has promised to his people. Let's pray.